Hey, it's Keith here. As you may have noticed, this is not the episode we attended at last time. Uh, since we could not do the recording this week, uh, we decided that we were going to release an episode that we had done back in September in the before times. Uh, so just sit back and enjoy this episode, and we should be back to our normal schedule as of April 20th when the next episode comes out. to yet another episode of What Is My Podcast About, a podcast where we bi-weekly try to figure out what we want to talk about for our podcast for future episodes. And as always, once again, I am joined by our beloved guests, well, not guests, but <laughs> co-hosts. Happy to be here on my first time guest appearing on this show. Peter. Hi. And Keith. Hi. First time uh, being on the podcast. Long time listener. Long time listener. Uh, sorry, did you want to introduce yourself there too, sir? Uh, sure. Uh, may as well. I'm, yeah, uh, I'm new here. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, who, uh, who are you? Well, I am the uh, not-so-beloved host, Matthew. Uh, the host, Matt, the not-so-beloved host, Matthew, and his two beloved guests, Peter and Keith. <laughs> awesome. So, how you guys doing? What's, <laughs> what's up with your lives? Well, there's a hurricane bearing down on us. It's not, not great, but I can't wait. So, as a bit of a spoiler for some of the people who are coming out, this will probably not get released right away. You know, hurricanes tend to mess up, stuff like that. Um, so, I want to talk about something that happened recently. So, we did recently record our D&D podcast. Or, not our D&D podcast. Oh, God. This is the D&D podcast. <laughs> uh, we recently recorded our board game podcast, uh, during which I brought up some ridiculous games that actually exist in the real world. Uh, one of which, if you were listening, you'll remember was the Bob Ross Art of Chill board game. Uh, Matt recently came into the boardroom where I work with a couple friends yeah. and got a chance to play the Bob Ross Art of Chill yeah, game. Yeah, Peter so graciously brought the board game before me, just proving without a doubt that it actually exists. And my god, it is actually really fun. It's super enjoyable. It's just like a very chill game about like watching the Bob Ross TV show and painting paintings along with it. What were your impressions, Matt? It was oddly strategic. Yes, it's a very strategic game where you have to know exactly what paints you need to collect in order to paint specific features. Just like the life of Bob Ross. Exactly. Oddly strategic. He was a maniacal mastermind. And kind of similarly, very close in uh, respect to my favorite board game, uh, Splendor. In the, I guess, the objective of collecting things to gain points. Yeah, you gotta collect specific resources and use those resources to kind of trade in for specific things. Yeah. Definitely has a bit of a splinter vibe. I never really thought about that before, but you're not wrong. It's a very standard board game format. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So what are we talking about today, boys? I think I already kind of fucked it up and said, but let's say it again. So today's episode, we're going to revisit the topic of Dungeons and Dragons. As we did in a previous episode, we talked about the same thing, except last time we talked about the game more as from the perspective as a dungeon master. This time we're tackling the behemoth of the game as a player would. And we know what you're thinking back there at home. What? How? Two D&D episodes? That was already my favorite episode. We get another? Uh, yes, we are all well aware it was your favorite episode. We're not just trying to cash in on that. We have a lot more to say about D&D, I think you'll find. I mean, I'm trying to cash in on it. Give we haven't sweet, even added sponsors yet. Sweet internet points. <laughs> they don't exist. They're not 
real material points. Say that to Bitcoin. Just uh, say that to Bob Ross. <laughs> All I'm trying to say is for everyone at home, look forward to uh, our ongoing series where we do episode three and four also on D&D. Um, coming out sometime. Coming out after we have sponsors that need to capitalize on I want to do an episode purely about mounts. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do an episode purely just about diseases <laughs> and how you get them and how you get rid of them. It's greater restoration. Greater restoration, yes. That's how you get rid of them. But how do you get them? Sex with women. Anyway, those are, to- <laughs> those are topics for future episodes. <laughs> or goblins. Or goblins. Anyway, for this episode, what did you guys want to talk about? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> well, I thought we were talking about the player perspective. Well, yes, but specifically. I need specifics, guys. Uh, well, uh, the part I want to talk about mainly is the first start. You, thing you really start off with is making your character. Going through the rule books, rolling your dice to get your stats, what to pick, all that fun stuff. The mechanical side of things. I also, surprisingly enough, wanted to talk about uh, kind of the aspect of char- creating a character. But rather than focusing on the mechanics, I also wanted to focus on like building the character itself and like the story that you're telling with your character and how to build both a lasting story that's interesting to you as well as one that it's easy to kind of build up on and how to roleplay your character going forward. Well, this seems a somewhat narrowly topicked podcast then because i too wanted to talk about uh, creating players mainly from the perspective of a new time player since i have vastly less experience than both of you in dungeons and dragons playing yeah i'd say yeah i think you're the newest player out of all of us and you probably well remember making your first character oh yeah because i don't remember making yeah. my first character. i remember my first character i don't remember making them though yeah i remember my first character i have no memories of actually making them because uh, in... i have a I've made a couple characters in my day. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Got a book of them. Yeah. yeah. And in just vanilla D&D, I have three characters. And that's it. Yeah, in total? What are the names? In total. Uh, the first one's name was Thexius. He was a tiefling. Tiefling sorcerer. The second one was a fighter. A dwarf by the name of... Uh, oh, he was... Oh, I forget his name, but it was based off of Yukon Cornelius from the good old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer show. I think show. it was just Cornelius. Yes, it was Cornelius, right. <laughs> he was uh, cast out from his clan, so he didn't have a last name anymore. And then the third character is... His name is Midas, and he is humanoid. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you uh, leave out specifics when you say humanoid. Uh, just because you never know who's going to listen to this podcast and find out secrets about your character you might not want them to know. Well, yeah, that is an ongoing campaign. I believe I DM'd all of those characters. <laughs> I yep. believe I have played alongside all of those characters and have had relations with each of them. True. I, I, um, I'm not specifically have any direct relations with Midas, but I was, uh, what was the first one's name? Hex? Thexius. Thexius. Yeah. I was Thexius's brother in one, ca- in that campaign. Uh, even when Thexius became a woman, I was still his brother. He just became my sister. Uh, and then, I don't know that we ever got far enough into the campaign for this to be revealed, but, uh, Cornelius, uh, I'm just gonna throw out the spoiler now, because I don't know that we're ever gonna go back to it. I was actually Cornelius's old boss. What? Who also got expelled from his, uh, <laughs> troop. Okay. Uh, and I recognized Cornelius, but, like, just didn't say anything, because I was just, like, a little bit embarrassed about our shared history. 
Yeah, the, now the reason I did that was because when I got both your character backstories, you had the exact same backstory. I was like, I, oh, I have to combine these now. <laughs> both of us like, made a horrible decision on the battlefield that caused it, and one of the characters' backstory was they were commander in the army, one was that they were like leading a, a squad in the army, and it's like, well, it makes sense that the commander would have made a call that caused the squad to just get wiped out, except for this one guy who blames himself for it. And that's part of what I like about making a character, is finding one idea that you'd like and would like to expand on role-playing as, and make that a significant anchor of your character's background story. Don't fully flesh out the background around the character, because then that really shoehorns the DM who's making the world around your character. Yeah. And they may be forced into a situation where they have to change something potentially against your will. Yeah, you want to have it full but vague enough that it can be worked out. Of course, the, uh, the DM that you have might have other ideas of that and is fully fine with you. Just throw in whatever you want, and they'll use that to just build onto the story, depending on how yeah. much of the world they have filled out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, let's... I think the logical progression is for us to first talk about your first character and how making your first character can kind of seem and kind of lessons to be learned from that and then we'll kind of progress and get more in-depth into the character creation aspects. So, in terms of first character, I find I notice this quite a bit is that when you first get into Dungeons & Dragons and you make your first character, more often than not, the person will base the character heavily off them and see it kind of like as... Uh, uh, a surrogate in a sense yeah. of themselves in this world i'm so, not playing a character i'm playing myself in this campaign yeah, and th that people also tend to get very defensive or upset if anything happens to that character i've seen it firsthand in a campaigns not the dragons necessarily but role-playing games where characters get really attached to what's happening with their character in any slight turns into issues in real life as well you I've, guys find that's true between people playing their first times i've seen multiple players who have watched their first character die uh, and then decided to stop playing in that entire campaign. And, like, they'll later come back to D&D, &D, but, like, I've seen people take, like, year-long hiatuses because their first character died and they just got a little bit too emotionally attached to their first character. There's nothing wrong with liking your character getting emotionally attached, but I think if you get to that level of attachment, it can definitely be a bit of a hindrance in the future. Yeah. But you still have to remember that you have created a character, and it's not your story that you've made the character in. You've made it in the story of another character. So if you're truly attached to that character in that story, then you should be expecting that character to potentially die at some point and be ready for that to happen. Oh, yeah, it's definitely the risk of being in any campaign. The other... I won't call it a pitfall, but the other... Uh, decision I see a lot of first-time people making is uh, people who play lots of D&D &D and who have made lots of characters uh, over time become less focused on building the best possible character. And some characters, or some players will remain focused on making sure they build the best, strongest character. But like a lot of or players start to kind of delve into just making characters that are fun or interesting ideas. I do find a lot of first-time players get a little bit too focused on making the best character that they can to the point where like they don't know what a lot of stuff means and so they'll end up just like i know multiple players who have gone online and like googled what's the best way to build a warlock what race should i be playing as a warlock and i i don't recommend that if that's what you're going to do for your first character i think be okay with having a character with flaws be okay with having a character who's not perfect and just kind of try stuff out and see what works and what doesn't. Yeah, and go with what sounds fun or what could be useful. Like, you're yeah. a sorcerer. Hey, does uh, teleporting in a cloud of mist seem fun? Go for that spell. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. 
the other one is like the question I always get because I've DM'd a couple parties and not as a DM, but like from the player's perspective, I've DM'd a lot of people who it's their first time. And the question I always get as the DM is like, should I get proficiency in this? I have like a low charisma score, so it doesn't make sense for me to put proficiency into persuasion because like I kind of like that, but like it doesn't make sense to me if I'm not good at charisma. And I think you're thinking about it backwards if that's your logic on it because the fact that you're bad at charisma is more of a reason to put your proficiency into persuasion because it's going to balance out your negative charisma score. And if persuasion is something that you like and are interested in, it's something you're going to do regardless of whether you're good or not at it. So giving yourself proficiency, if it's a skill you're bad at, is just going to incentivize you to use it more. And it gives you another goal for your character's growth because you'll have points throughout the campaign where you can improve that skill. Yeah. Oh, definitely. One of my favorite things whenever I'm making a character is getting a score in anything under 10. Yes. Because that is so fun because, you know, it's like, okay, this is something I'm going to have to work around later down the line. Having a character who's got, like, an 8 in intelligence and, like, making that decision of, like, I know this, but does my slightly dumb character know this? Because, like, for those of you who don't know what the numbers mean, a 10 in any score is considered, like, perfectly average. This is what an average human being would have. So a 10 in intelligence is average intelligence. Below that, you're below average intelligence. So if you have an 8 in intelligence, you're slightly below average intelligence. You're not the sharpest tool in the shed, as the cool kids say. So I love kind of having characters who have lower stats and just, like, finding a way to bake that into my character. Of, like, a character with low agility, but, like, crazy high strength, super strong, very unbalanced. And the thing about, too, is playing Dungeons & Dragons with a group of people, more often than not, the issue should be problem solving based on the skills that the players have in the group. So when you have a character that has not, you know, an average and everything, or even above average and everything, you have those flaws. It makes you think about the game when you're playing it in a much different way, which opens up a whole wide realm of just crazy ideas and thinking around puzzles instead of trying to just barrel through them with just rolling. Because if you're, for example, as you said, bad with intelligence, well, you're going to have to think of another way to address a situation based on the limits of what your character can do. Or if you have really poor strength, well, you're going to approach situations maybe different from the rest of the party is. And you have to think about the game in such more interesting ways, I find, when you put that caveat of, uh, I am very frail. If I get hit by anything, I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, perfect example. Let's say you have low strength and everyone else in your team has, like, moderate strength. Like, they've got, like... 12s and 13s, you've got, like, an 8 for strength. And your party comes up across, like, a big boulder blocking the way down, further down the cave. A lot of people with, like, average strength are probably going to be like, all right, let's just try and push it. And they're going to roll, and they're going to fail. And they're just going to be like, one of these days I'm going to roll good enough, and they're not going to really think around that problem. You having a low strength, you're like, there's no chance in hell I'm going to push this. Let me see if there's, like, uh, like wooden board or something around here that I can wedge between it to get some leverage you start thinking around your problems and you end up having a lot more fun like kind of dealing with the problems especially if you have a party where you like collectively have very diverse skills and weaknesses yeah. you have a lot of fun you got one person in your group who's a big buff strong man but real dumb then you have situations where like you have to explicitly explain to him what he has to do because he's the only one who can physically do it but he does not understand what has to be done. So you have to be like, no, you need to go over there and you need to pull the lever and hold the door open until every one of us is through the door. If we're not through the door, don't let go of the lever. And you just have to like have that explicit conversation. So I really love like baking in weaknesses into characters because 
it allows you to have those kind of conversations where it's not just everyone knows exactly what they're doing because they're all jacks of all trades. You have to have some people who are just terrible at some stuff to make it more fun. Oh, definitely. And it's in, uh, more in line with um, probably your future characters down the line, but the whole concept of min-maxing your character. Yes. Where you find the ideal situation. And this is a good thing for people who want to play the game, but everyone playing the game has different ways of what is fun to them to play the game. Whether you're, you know, the tactical mastermind in the back throwing off spells, or the big brooding dumb guy in the front that's just kind of knocking everything down. You can min-max your character into, again, there's six prime stats that all play very differently, depending on what you do. If you're a strength character, you want to be up there fighting all the time. If you're a con character, you're going to be probably more of the tanky one. If you're the indulgence character, you don't want to be in the fight, you're probably trying to talk the situation out before it gets to that point. Or if you're the charismatic bird, you're just trying to sleep with everyone. Exactly. So, perfect example of what min-maxing can look like. We talked about this a little bit during our board gaming uh, episode when we talked about playtesting games. We talked about the campaign you created with the uh, superheroes and like how you had a pool of stamina and a pool of strength and like seeing like how those fights would work out and making sure everything was balanced. And I talked about how just to test your system, I created a character with minimal uh, like life points and maximal stamina so that like I don't have to survive a hit so long as I put all of my stamina into my hit, whoever I punch is going the fuck down. That's the perfect example of min-maxing. I'm really good at one thing and terrible in every other situation. Yeah. That you would that would be the classic glass cannon build. Where yeah. you do a lot of damage, but you can't take a lot. No. Yeah. But that just goes to show that it do, you don't have to consider the stats too much when first making your character. Because no matter with what you have or what you're given with to start, there's always some way to work around what you have. Oh, yeah. And 5e makes it so easy too, because even if you flip through the book, you can see it gives you the... You know, quick start for all the characters. Like, yeah. oh, if you're making a fighter, you want to put stats into these two because those are your primary stats. Yeah. You want to have a high strength and a high constitution. Those are the ones that make the most sense for you. Yeah. Um, at the same time, don't feel like you have to do that. Like, if you do any reading on stuff, like, and you read into, like, how to build specific characters and you read up on wizards, you'll probably, like, come across stuff that tells you that you probably want to have pick a race with a high intelligence and you want to go glass cannon build... And that's the way most people build their first couple wizards, is you go full glass cannon build, you do a lot of damage, you don't take a lot of damage. The much more fun way, in my mind, is to build the muscle wizard, which you know a couple real basic spells, and other than that, you're just the beefiest boy on the battlefield. Yeah, I, if I believe correctly, muscle wizard is a uh, level or two in monk, and then you take wizard spells, and then you put all of your stuff, like I think you do find familiar, pick octopus, put all of your stuff into grappling, and you just win every fight by choking the dude out. Yeah. It's a fantastic build, and it's just not the kind of stuff that, like, seems immediately obvious. Well, that's the fun of it. The more you play the game, you start getting those little nuggets of ideas, like, oh, that would be interesting, and that's where we get into the theory crafting, where a whole bunch of fun possibilities come up, where you build a character who's not necessarily the best character for the game, but it's got some interesting caveats to it. Like, in the uh, campaign we're currently building, or not currently building, currently playing through, uh, one of the characters is essentially built a teleporting assassin because you put a certain number of levels into monk you choose the monk way of the shadows subclass which allows you to literally teleport between shadows so long as they're at most 60 feet apart and then you put the rest of your levels as soon as you have that skill into rogue so that you can get sneak attack and then you just teleport around the room sneak attacking people from the shadows essentially just a ninja <laughs> essentially just a ninja but it's the kind of stuff like Nothing about monk leads you to believe, like, that's a thing that you should be doing as a monk. Nothing about rogue, like, leads you to believe that's a thing you should be doing about rogue. But as you start to play both of them, you realize, 
wait, that's a really weird connection that I could definitely build if I built both of them. And it's the kind of stuff you just don't think about your first time. And the more characters you build, the more kind of connections you start to recognize, the more interesting stuff you think about. Oh, definitely. Like, uh, another good example of this is not necessarily uh, doing multi-classing, but just theorycrafting or something else is fighters can also go decks. You don't have to go strength or fighter. Yeah. And being a fighter that focuses on ranged attacks is also a very interesting way to play it. Yes. Uh, that being said, you gotta have that conversation with your party. I was a part of a group once when um, our party was all discussing what classes we were gonna go, and there's a couple new players. And one of the new players said I was gonna build, or he was gonna build a fighter, and we're all like, "Cool." We didn't really have a frontline fighter at this point. We had two spellcasters. We had, I think, it was a sorcerer, a bard, and we had a cleric. And then he was like, "I'm gonna go fighter," and the rest of them were all like, "That's great." Now we got a fighter. We got a frontline fighter. So the cleric went more like Path of Light. Wasn't really like super concerned with getting up in the middle of the thick of it. Was more concerned with also staying back spelling. Now that we have a fighter in our midst. Little did we know, fighter was building a ranged fighter. And now we have no one who wants to get into the fight. And everyone who wants to stand back as far as possible. And it was just like, it's a great way to build your character. Make sure if you're building a non-standard kind of character, the rest of your party knows about it so that they know what gaps are still <laughs> existent in your party. And that's a fun thing to think about, too, because when you're making a character, you're usually sitting down with the party and talking about what you want to do. The party dynamic is nothing to do with the DM. That is no. all on the party themselves to figure out how they want to try to build that party up to fit weaknesses, or just everyone plays whatever they want. Yeah. Uh, I always... I don't know. I always find it funny when I'm when I've been DMing groups and like they're setting up their party dynamic and people message me and they're like, do you think we need a cleric? And I'm like, I don't really care. I'll be fine if you guys don't have a cleric. I'll be fine if you guys do have a cleric. You should decide amongst yourselves whether you guys want to have a cleric. If you want to have a healer, yeah, build a cleric. If you don't have a cleric, I'm not going to fuck you over and put you in like really taxing situations that require you to heal yourselves. I'll find ways around it or give you access to stuff that'll heal you. you. Don't have a cleric. What's that? You're going to be fighting undead for the first three <laughs> uh, sessions. Yeah, so it's an important discussion to have with the other players in your party more so than with the DM himself. Yes, you want to include the DM and like make him aware of what you're doing, but it's much more important that like all of the players at the table know what kind of dynamic you're building as a party. My favorite examples of this is... Uh, I forget what the podcast was, but I was listening to a podcast a while back... And all the players decided they were just going to build characters independently. And then they came together. Turns out they had all built barbarians without knowing it. Because they all agreed a class they hadn't played a lot before. And the DM, not knowing they were going to do this, built a session around a lot of intelligence-based puzzles at the beginning. And so they just punched their way through like a wizard's tower. And yeah. If I recall, they came across their hidden lair. The first one's like... Okay, due to some obscure background information about my character's creation, I know how to uh, pick locks or cast this particular unlock spell. He tries to wave his wand, nothing happens, and then it clicks in his mind. Oh yeah, I'm a barbarian. <laughs> and he just busts the wall down. And they just beat up all the wizards and just take what they want from the lair. Now I'm going to be honest, Peter, when you start telling that story about all the characters... You thought I was going to tell the If you were going to say cleric, I was gonna, that was this podcast, <laughs> yeah. that was me. As I was telling this story, I was tempted to say clerics just to say... I don't remember what podcast I heard it on, but I remember listening to a podcast and hearing people talk about creating a bunch of clerics. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, we did talk about Matt's first character, but uh, we didn't really touch on ours too much there. 
Uh, do you remember your first D&D character? I do. Um, I don't... So, one thing I'll say before I go into my first character too much. Uh, an important decision to make when you build your first character is making sure you're with the right party of people. Because my first D&D character made it to three sessions... And then I decided D&D was not for me because the people I was playing with were fucking terrible <laughs> and they ruined D&D for me. And I was just like, cool, never playing D&D again. And it wasn't until like, I think a year later I went back and I was like, let's try it with different, more cool people. And the more cool people were great. And I was like, all right, D&D is actually super, sto uh, super awesome. So the first character I ever created was a gnome wizard by the name of Mr. Timnus. <laughs> uh... I actually added him as NBCs to later campaigns, but he was a character whose entire, like, his backstory, I really liked the character. It was a shame. I just hated the fucking campaign. Um, he was a character whose entire existence was built around serving others. So anytime anyone asked him to do something, even, like, as a joke, if someone was like, man, sucks that there's a dragon, like, collecting taxes from everyone in this town. Do you think you could get rid of him? Like, my character would devote his entire existence into, like, solving this problem for them until someone diverted his attention by asking him to do something else. So, like, there was times when, like, the mayor found out about my character in, like, the second session and, like, asked him to do exactly that. He asked him, me to get rid of a dragon that was, like, collecting taxes from the town. I was like, cool, off to go do that. And I left. This was partially just because I wasn't a very experienced player. And I was just like, cool, I'll do whatever I'm told. <laughs> and, like, the party actually, like chased after me like no 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 don't do that it's like i was asked to i gotta do what i was asked and the party's like uh how about instead of that you um bake a cake uh, yeah it'd be great if you baked a cake for me right now and my character's like all right cool i'll do that instead then. <laughs> uh my first character uh, uh was a half elf fighter and uh my first time playing the campaign it was not one of your standard dd campaigns because what the uh dungeon master for this one ended up doing was we all were uh, children from this one village and during like a festival uh, the, the gazebo ate us or something like that I can't remember the exact details but essentially we got sucked through a gazebo into another dimension alright so we had no skills whatsoever uh, going in we didn't hit level 1 until we got to this other world because classes didn't exist until then essentially Yeah. so we just kind of pick it up so I ended up going with the fighter class to kind of round up the team we had a, a druid uh, a gnome wizard funny enough uh, we had uh a good core. Uh, we had a really foul mouth uh, uh, dwarven fighter uh, who I believe was like it was definitely like a penis joke in the name but I can't remember it at the moment. Thorin Thundershaft or whatever it was the character from a... you had a, a you created a dwarf NPC that had a penis joke in his name. It might have been honestly <laughs> but essentially uh, the whole idea was we were trying to get back to our world for the campaign. Yeah. Uh, but my character, like, I, I wasn't sure how to play the game properly, so the character, uh, the guy who was DMing just said, you know, just play until, like, your character realizes, like, hmm, what does my character like? Oh, he's a fighter. What do fighters like? Weapon? Maybe he just really likes knives. So I had this fight that just really liked knives. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, uh, in a complete shift on things, the first town we came to, so, remembering the whole quest, the point of it is to get back to our own dimension, we get to the city, fight the city, just fucking hates gnomes like hates gnomes with a passion like gnomes are hanging off the walls and everything like that we get into the town we find a gnome slum and we come up with the great idea it's like ah oh, it kind of sucks for these guys maybe we can help them proceed to you know 
30 sessions later, we're still in this town, we've built up the slums into this massive, like, gnome populace, and I am training an army of gnomes to lead the battle. <laughs> were they all equipped with knives? Uh, multiple weapons, but there's knives with everybody. Good. Uh, so the city, like, there's the, pretty much the campaign devolved into the city who fucking hate gnomes trying to destroy this, and we just kind of had to defend it every week. <laughs> I like that. We never finished that campaign. Can't imagine why not. <laughs> Same campaign, we had another person who wanted to play, like, this, uh, a rogue character. But he didn't go the standard rogue, like, there were some standard rogue things in there. But the best thing about it was, uh, this character was named Slippery John. Uh, everyone hated him. But he wasn't like, you know, came from like, oh, I was orphaned and on the streets. He was just a really weird guy in the town. <laughs> he saw his family, lived in a nice home, but he was just really fucking weird. And we had so many good moments of him being weird with the party and doing just nonsensical stuff. Like there was a time where uh, as soon as we went into the third dimension, we got captured by these evil people and thrown into a, a jail cell. And uh, me and him were in the same cell and we came up with a plan to get loose. So uh, essentially he was going to hide. And then I was going to call the guards, like, oh, he disappeared. What happened to him? And we were in the sewers at this point. So he ends up crawling through just waste and shit and, like, up to the guard. So we can't <laughs> see him. He just comes out with a knife and starts stabbing the guys. Like, the DM's like, so I think this guy just dies right off the bat just from, the, like, the sheer amount of not surviving the con check from this knife being stabbed him that was just covered in shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a part where uh, the player had to disappear for a couple of weeks. So he wasn't in the session. So when he came back... Uh, the DM's like, well, I want you to explain to us why Slippery John was not present. Because <laughs> when he shows up, he's wearing, like, uh, French military gear from, like, the 1800s. Like, the Napoleon getup. And it's like, what happened to you? And he tells us this huge story about how he was on run from the guards. And he, uh, there was a part where he slipped into uh, the uh, mayor's town, uh, into his house. And they were having dinner, so he sat down at the table and started having dinner with them. Well, they're all free. He's like, who are you? And he just acted like nothing was wrong. He starts hitting on the guy's daughter. And he's like, how dare you? And he starts hitting on the mayor. And ends up causing like, oh, the, the, the mayor of this town to actively lead a military campaign against our little gnome hovel. Oh my god, that's amazing. But he was like, at this point, uh, so he ended up becoming like a hero of the people. Wearing his, oh, I forgot to mention, it's bright yellow. The military attire oh. that he's wearing. So, standard rogue, but with done differently. So that reminds me of... I don't know how, but it reminds me of something else I wanted to talk about. Which was the concept of derailing a campaign. I, I don't know what about what you just said reminded me of this, but clearly something did. Because I know... I know that can be a real concern for some players of... Some players, it's absolutely not a concern. But some Al people are almost like, seems like it's like their goal. Yeah, some people it's their goal to derail the campaign. But some players are like, oh no, I did this. Did I like derail the campaign? Am I like ruining it or anything like that? And honestly, I think the general rule of thumb is if the DM if the DM says something and you respond to it, you're not derailing the campaign. So yeah. for instance, if you the DM like introduces you to a town and talks about how like gnomes are very mistreated in a uh, town and you fixate on this and like try to build a better life for the gnomes you're not derailing the campaign because the dm left it open for you there and if it's not where he wanted it to go frankly it's on his own fault for putting so much detail on how the gnomes are being mistreated uh, uh, an, however an example of that actually is uh, uh i listen to quite a few dungeon dragons podcasts and stuff uh, there's a group outside Xbox or YouTube channel. Yes. And there was a recent one that we were talking about derailing campaigns where the DM mentioned how he gave a little too much information causing an issue where they were looking for 
some details about the missing son of the like uh, mayor guy or whatever. Yeah, and, and he I, gave him information about uh, something getting picked up at the dockyards, which actually was just in reference to the furniture. And they spent like forty minutes at the dockyards trying to find something that did not exist, and he didn't know what to do. Yeah. So as a general rule of thumb, I have: if your DM says something and you fixate on that detail, you're not really derailing the campaign. You're just finding details to focus on. But if it's a completely different situation where uh, your DM says something like you're sailing past or you're sailing past an island, and uh, it seems like a rather small island with like one major port on the front and some steep cliffs around the rest, and your response is, "Well, let's sail around those cliffs and look for like hidden caves that people like maybe aren't as aware about." Oh, do I see any caves? Oh, I found a cave. All right, is there any secret passages in these caves that lead to like a smuggling ring or something like that? The moment you start trying to create details, that's when you're derailing the campaign. So, the DM gives you details and you fixate on those details, I would not consider it derailing the campaign. Even if it's not at all what the DM expected you to go, you're snagging onto details that he has created. If you're trying to create details to snag onto, then you're absolutely derailing the campaign. Yeah, and that ties into one of the biggest things about role-playing your character, where that can cause issues of derailing the campaign even though you don't want to. And that's something that I feel like as you get more experienced in playing Dungeons and Dragons 2, you realize it's much easier to walk that line, where some players, when they're new to the game, they'll say, no matter what, I have to do exactly what my character would do. But when you play more, for example, say a new person is joining the party. Well, naturally, if your character is a mistrusting person, they're going to be like, no, that person can't come with us. And you'll have to spend a whole session having to build that bond between them. Whereas if you're more experienced in playing and the new character joins, you'll find a reason why your character would, and then approach it from that angle instead of just outright saying no. Same with, uh, you know, that derailing. If you get a piece of information, you know that information will completely derail the campaign for a couple of sessions. You can choose not to act on it and then explain why through your character's motivations. I think the perfect example of this is anytime a player for their first character chooses to build a paladin. We've all experienced it because as you're reading through uh, the player's handbook and you're reading up on paladins, you realize each of them makes certain uh, oaths to their gods. Like, I have an oath of devotion, I have an oath of protection, and stuff like that. Anytime a player creates a paladin for their first character, they always lean into it just like a little bit too hard. And they're like, nope, can't do that. It's against everything I agreed as a paladin. It's just like, at a certain point, you have to realize that, like, there are things your paladin would do. Maybe it doesn't seem to fit with what the book said, but you have to make certain concessions. Otherwise, the campaign is just not going to progress. If every time your party's like, we have to kill these goblins, you can't be the player going, nope, I have to protect the goblins because someone is seeking to kill them. Can't yeah. be the person who's yeah. constantly opposing your party because it doesn't fit with what your oath tells you. Yeah, you're not signing a contract when you're making a character. You're choosing a framework to build off of. Yeah. So you can always just, like, build into it. Like, for example, there's the Oath of Devotion where you uh, make an oath where you uh, promise to, like, be devoted to your god and follow all of their rules. And then there's also, like, the Oath of Protection where you make the oath that you're going to protect those in need. But you can rework that around. And instead of it just being anyone your party decides needs to die is someone you need to protect, you can just rephrase that as the fact that your party wants to kill them means that they're probably going to try and kill your party in response and so you can just say that you're protecting the members of your party uh from death in the same way you don't have to always fight for fucking lawful good true justice you can build a character that 
is a paladin without building a character that's a pain in the ass. Oh, definitely. And to be fair, paladin is one of the harder ones to play, especially as a first time. Yeah. Which, I guess, is also balanced out by the fact that it's probably one of the best classes you can also play. Oh, it's phenomenal when you uh, know what you're doing. Because, what was it? 5e alone, what, I'd say probably, like, what, the t best classes to play, just ability-wise. Bard's definitely number one with how 5e's built. Yeah. Then it would be, like, what, fighter and paladin? Yeah. Spellcasters are tend to be good, but since they have so many drawbacks of you can hit them, they tend to be more middle tier. And then Monk and Ranger just kind of got shit on in 5e. Ranger had a real rough go of it. Yeah. They had to, like... Everyone, like, commented when it first came out about how much they fucked over the Ranger in the process that they revised it and came out with another version of the Ranger just to fix everyone's complaints yeah. about the Ranger. But, like, it didn't even, like... It helped it a bit, but not enough to make it, like... No. As good as the other three mentioned classes that would be, like, no. the top-tier ones. Yeah. The Bard Fighter and, uh... Paladin. Paladin are all phenomenal. Yeah, but despite what's good or bad, my recommendation for if you're making your character for your first time is read through the descriptions of the characters, not necessarily all the details behind all the character mechanics, and just choose a class that you like. Choose a race that you like and build your kind of background around that. Because my, my first character is a sorcerer. I chose sorcerer because... In all like, video games and things, I've always chose caster classes before. I've always liked the magic aspect. Yep. And also, since it was my first character, as a sorcerer, I'd stay back at range, so I'd technically be a little safer in combat to play around with the mechanics. At technically. Technically, at times. And, uh... Yeah, one thing I highly recommend if you're going to build your first character is don't read the stat mechanics for the characters at first when you're making your decisions. Each of the options you make, so you'll make an option, or the main three decisions you make when you're building your character, at least in 5e, is you have to pick your race, your class, and your background. And then there's some other minor choices, but they're all kind of made within those three main choices. Yeah. And each of those main choices, it'll say, like, one of the classes is a dwarf, and it'll say these are all the stats about the dwarf, but before it says any of the stats, it gives a brief description of what life as a dwarf is like. And if you just read those descriptions of what life is like as a dwarf what life is like as a dragonborn what life is like as an elf it can kind of give you a much better idea of like this actually seems really interesting to me i want to build a character around this then you read the same thing from the classes and it gives you examples of like bards like playing money to try and earn coins on the side of the road or like telling tales in the biggest bars and earning lots of money from all of their adoring fans and stuff like that or being uh, responsible for all the humanoid monsters that are out in the field yeah all of the half-human, half-something-else are all probably a bard's mistake. Yep. Uh, not progress, or not, like, responsible for the bard. They're his mistakes, and he knows it. <laughs> he knows what he did. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it gives you this kind of brief, kind of world description of what the choices you're making are without actually telling you all the specific numbers. And I find if you focus on that, it allows you to build a character you're invested in without getting so bogged down on what's the best way to build a character. Yeah. And then it's easier to focus on trying to play to what that character would be about. It's easier to learn how to roleplay, I yeah. guess, to put it easily. Exactly. Like, when I built my first character, that's pretty much what I did. I, like, read up on the different classes, and, like, gnomes sound super fun to me, because they're just, like, tiny people who are constantly, like, as a people, avoiding conflict as much as possible. I'm like, yeah, absolutely, let's do that. And then I, similar to you... I wanted to be a spellcaster because in a lot of 
video games I've played before and a lot of times when I made that kind of decision spellcasting is always super fun and it gives you a lot more freedom in my experience than kind of physically getting up in there in my recent adventures with characters I've had a lot more fun being the physical in the middle of the fight because I find that fucking amazing and super enjoyable yeah and I believe actually uh, Matt you mentioned once uh, to me that going from your first character to your second character oh, going yes. from the spellcast who had to micromanage so much to just Walking up and punching the guy across yeah. the room. You felt so good being able to do that. Yeah. yeah. The, my huge revelation for how fun that class was and that sudden change in playstyle from what I was used to was our first combat interaction. You paused I, to think about what spells you had. No, I ended up starting it because a bunch of uh, guards came into the tavern we were in and they wanted to take us hostage or take us somewhere to work or whatever. We'd never finish the campaign. Yeah, they were going to take one of your traveling companions. Yes, yes. right. And uh, I was just there frantically trying to figure out what to do to stop them. And then I'm like, wait, I'm a dwarf. I'm a fighter. I don't have spells. I just walk up to the guy and headbutt him. <laughs> and combat starts. And it was great. Yeah. It's, uh... It's very freeing playing as a melee fighter, because you just don't have to think about shit anymore. Yep. <laughs> Although, that being said, uh, the next character that I plan on making, now that I have some more experience with the game, is certainly going to involve a lot more thinking. Because it's going to be back to Sorcerer, but his uh, source of his magic is wild magic, so whenever he casts a spell, there's going to be... I love wild magic. <laughs> there's going to be some random effect that happens, like it could turn you or an ally into a potted plant for a turn. But he's also going to be blind. <laughs> oh, and I just can't wait to play around with that. All well, of that. And that's definitely the thing. When you get more and more into making characters, I have probably 17 characters made that I'll never play, that they're all built around just a singular idea that I had that just seems really fun. Yeah. I, I do that all the time. Like, I uh, I built a character who their whole deal was that, like, they were blind and, like, they wore, like, a head wrapper o over their eyes. Um, but the whole thing was they had access to the skill blind sight. And, like, I built a custom class that I'm never going to play in an actual campaign just so that they would, like, walk around and act like a blind person, like, 90% of the time. And then, like, the other 10% of the time be clearly perfectly competent but like also constantly making jokes about something like someone would be like did you see where he went and like not even asking my character like asking the party and my character would just jump in and like i didn't see anything <laughs> and that's the other beautiful thing too of uh, when you get into the theory crafting of just character making there's so many things you can find online if you want to make a specific character from your favorite show or anything you can probably find that online if you want to make uh, a character of a class that doesn't exist in the game there's probably homebrews I've seen Super Saiyan homebrews. I've seen uh, stand users from JoJo listed. I've even seen, uh, you know, this is how you build Captain America or Dante in Dungeon Dragons. <laughs> one of my favorite is I saw one that was uh, how you build all of the different Disney princesses as characters in Dungeons and Dragons. The one slightly frustrating part is like 60% of them are birds because all they do is sing. <laughs> you got Mulan in there as a fighter and that's about it. I'm trying to think, like, okay, yeah, most of them would be singing. I I'm going to make a guess here and say that Princess Jasmine was the other non-bard. Uh, actually, it was Princess Jasmine wasn't, and also uh, Ariel was a rogue just because she's constantly stealing and collecting <laughs> That's things. <right. laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing uh, Jasmine was probably a ranger or a druid. Yeah, uh, she was a druid. Yep. And also Ariel, for the vast majority of The Little Mermaid, could not talk. <laughs> 
Yeah, not not a great bard skill. I mean, to be fair, this is a misunderstanding a lot of people have about bard. Bard doesn't have to be a musician. No. I once played an interpretive dance bard. Yeah. It's very fun. You can also do a painting bard. You can do a bard that tells stories or jokes. And isn't there like a bard of the, like, the school of swords or something? Yeah. So it's like kind of like dancing, essentially. Okay. And that's the thing. Bard is just have to have something that performs that... Think of if it can be a street show in any capacity, that's what a bard can be. Trampolines. I, Your weapon is a trampoline. You can be a contortionist I, bard and it would work. I love the idea of being a sword swallowing bard. Except, like, the way you attack is you're like, now you try and you just stab people through the mouth. <laughs> or maybe a contortion bard. Because I was... My friend told me of a character that someone he knew made once. He was a bard, except his main stat was strength. So when he was first making his character, he asked the DM, okay, what kind of weapon uh, can I use as a bard? Or what kind of instruments can I have? And the DM's like, eh, just choose whatever you want to play. So he chose a grand piano. He decided to wheel around a grand piano everywhere they went and just flip it on top of enemies they came across. Also, for uh, I thought of it, but um, a bard that doesn't speak, you can make a mime. Yeah. And just piss off the party even more with your bard shenanigans. <laughs> oh, making a bird who is uh, can't speak it is a mime, and so every time you want to do something on your activation, actually miming it out to the other people at the table, and then never being invited to another D&D <laughs> session. Because you don't actually even bring actual dice. You just mime rolling a dice. I'm just imagining him, like... Because there are definitely spells that do invisible things, like invisible weapon. And just imagining a bard fighting with an invisible sword and actually dealing damage. It's just such a good idea. Oh, it's like the Mr. Mime scene from Pokemon uh, Detective Pikachu. Yeah, where well, he gets yes. lit on fire. <laughs> oh, boy. You just need to get... I, I, there's got to be a cantrip that just lets you make things invisible. Yeah, I think there is. And just like, so you apply it to everything you're doing. And if not, just homebrew it. Yeah. Yep. Just like homebrew reverse minor illusion. Yeah, pretty much. Oh man, I gotta make that character now. Oh, that's oh. amazing. Do another uh, campaign of the legendary five barbarians, except with five five pirates, all <laughs> of the mimes. The seven mimes. It's just five pirates, but each one of them is a different type of like street performer. <laughs> you got the sword swallower, the mime, the. It's just a circus campaign. Yeah. And the ringmaster is an evil black dragon. <laughs> Alright, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about role-playing your character and what kind of decisions you should be making before playing and what kind of decisions you should be saving until you kind of start playing your character. Because people tend to make one of two main mistakes when they kind of build their backstory for their character. And I, I know I'm usually guilty of one of them. Keith, you'll probably be able to know which of the two I'm guilty of as I start to explain them. Both. Uh, so the first one that people tend to make is they just don't really write a backstory. They don't think about how they fit in the world. They're just like, this is the character I want to build. I'm not too concerned with how it fits into the world. I'm just going to build this character, and that's what will be. And as we start to play, I'll build a character around them. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it gets you a lot more invested in the early sessions if you have a backstory built into your character that you can kind of draw on for early sessions. And also, if you do have a backstory pre-planned out, your DM can pull shit from that for later sessions. Like, if you have a backstory about how, like, you never knew who your father was, your DM can, like, at a later point in the campaign be like, uh, fuck it. The villain of this, like, shorter arc is actually going to be your father. And, like, I had the villain played out. I'm just going to change him slightly to make him be your father 
just to add extra emotional impact to this whole fight scene that you guys are going to have to go through. And that's definitely one of the fun things about being the player and not the DM is because the DM knows that he's fiddling with things and changing things that already exist. As the player, it's like, he made a whole thing just for me. And Uh, if the DM asks you if they can change a little bit of your backstory, particularly that you're the secondborn, but they want to change it to you being the firstborn, expect that your lost father is going to sacrifice you as their firstborn to some demon god. (laughs) Um... At the same time, the other mistake that I see people make is they go the complete opposite direction and they write, like, a six-page oat backstory with, like, so much detail baked into it. And, like, you'd think that would be a great job and super helpful, but instead of, like, providing more for the DM to pull from, it actually, like, builds a cage around the DM and they're like, now I have to, anytime I interact with this player, I have to invoke the fact that his father was a chemist who created the cure for cancer, but uh, in creating the cure for cancer, he decided that he would take on all of the cancer that anyone else would ever get for the rest of time. And so he's just crippled with cancer, but can never die. It's like, it's a weird backstory, and it's like super cool that you wrote that, but you're kind of forcing the DM to reference it. That's probably the player that's going to be DMing in no time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I find the happy medium is if you can write like a page of backstory, that's great. It gives the DM stuff to read from. If they want to pull stuff from your backstory to make the story more relevant, they have lots of chances to do so. Also, great rule of thumb. Anytime you give anything to the DM as a backstory, it is not written in stone that this is what happened. This is your interpretation of events from your past. So if the DM fucks with it a little bit and like changes it so that your twin brother is actually your own self but you're just disassociating from your own memories then that's perfectly cool i know it changes with what you were thinking but what you were thinking is still valid because that's how you interpreted your past the dm probably has the reasons for changing your backstory a little bit and if they do be all right with that fact uh, when i write my backstory the fun thing i like to do is i kind of do a, i give a lot but in a vague way for example, uh, what I like to do is, for example, I'll list my family members and my relationship with them, but I won't give examples of my relationship with them. I'll say, oh, I have a brother who I get along well with, or I have a sister who I can't stand, I have a cold, emotional, emotionless father who's distant, and like a caring mother. And then for backstory of like my character, I tend to focus on how my character got to this point without giving specific details. So it's like, oh, he was very smart from a young age, and he self-taught by reading a bunch of books. Uh, he was bred to be the leader of something, not exactly saying what it was. So maybe with that, it'll be like, oh, your father was a politician, so you were bred to be the leader of like this region, or maybe he owned a, a merchant's guild or something like that. You give enough details to explain your character and fill it out, but don't give the details of areas, places, or things that can be filled in. Plus, that's a great form of backstory, because you say stuff like, your brother you have a great relationship with, without giving like too much specifics... Then your DM can just be like, uh, the big bad is actually going to be your brother. And you're like, I had a great relationship with him. It's like, yeah, because he was manipulating you from the start. And he wanted you to join his side when he like finally revealed his plan. It's like leaving that kind of vagueness. Whereas if you said, like, I have a great relationship with my brother because he's the paragon of what humanity should be. And he's a perfect person. And then your DM decides, I'm going to make him a villain. Then you're like, no, that doesn't fit with what I told you about my brother. So leaving that kind of vagueness or open-endedness for your DM to play around with. That or you just found out that you're the bad guys. <laughs> yep. You're, you're, he's the paragon of humanity and he's the villain. Wait a second. We're the villains. 
Uh, so, yeah, I just always recommend when you're kind of writing your backstory, leave enough open-endedness that your DM can play around with it, and also have the conversation with your DM. Don't just write out six pages all on your own, become committed to them, and then give them to your DM and be like, this is my backstory, but maybe write out, like, a page version with a lot less detail and be like, this is what I'm thinking. Does that work with you? Do you want to work out some more details with me together? It's a lot better of a way to kind of move forward. Yeah, and that's something I'll do myself. Uh, I like to, you know, if I'm going to be a long campaign, you want to make sure that you're sitting down with your DM in some capacity to work out your backstory if you have a lot, just so you don't mess with the world as a whole. But if it's a short one-off, usually it doesn't matter because a one-off campaign is usually, you got to clear out this mansion full of zombies or dragging up in the mountain fucking with people. You gotta clear out this mansion full of zombies, but at the same time, will your brother's marriage to his sister uh, go off without a hitch? They're actually the ones getting married in the village, and you're a year in advance to make sure it's a good location. Also, I definitely just said, will your brother get married to his sister without a hitch? And I don't know what you got going on in your family, but that's messed up. Well, if it's a mansion full of zombies, I had my assumptions. Eh. Medieval nobles. <laughs> yeah, Have gotta it all keep the, time. the bloodline pure. Sure. Oh, God. Which one? There's plenty to choose from. It's true. There's literally so many gods in D&D. Wasn't one of you talking about having a character that was atheist? Oh, I've talked about that before. Building a character who's atheist in the world of D&D just because, like, atheists in our world make a certain amount of sense because, like, we don't have any direct evidence you can pull from to prove that gods exist. Atheists in D&D are fascinating to me because, like, acts of divine intervention happen on a daily basis. So I love the idea of building a character, not just an atheist, but, like, a fighter who not only doesn't believe in gods, but doesn't believe in magic, and tries to explain away everything that he sees. is like, oh, I know I just saw you shoot fire from your hands, but clearly you've got, like, some sort of, like, candle up your sleeve and you just threw a whole bunch of like sawdust and the sawdust caught on fire <laughs> kind of in that same vein there's a character i've created that i haven't got the chance to play but it's a paladin that i made whose whole thing is he's just kind of like lost like the feeling of like god's work and all that stuff so he's not an atheist he just doesn't care to do the work anymore but the god hasn't given up on him so his whole thing is he you play him with not really trying anything so he's just you know barely even swinging his sword and like why bother and like not being as boisterous when he's casting spells but the god keeps giving like helping him to like come on you can do this buddy come on i, I don't give up on you he's like why even bother like, you <laughs> have the potential don't stop now the whole story, you probably have his whole backstory about, but, you know, getting back his, like, faith and, like, the, the feeling of, like, I can make a difference instead of just, like, uh, we're all gonna die anyways. Life is meaningless. We all must perish in the end. Meanwhile, my character's over there, like, yeah, I agree. God doesn't exist. Everything's a lie. I guess I'll smite. Uh. Holy Ray comes down from the sky. What does your atheist have to say about that? <laughs> Yeah, the sun is shining this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Role playing your character, there's the two sides of it as well. A lot of people like to get right into it. You're acting at the character. And then there's, of course, the people that don't really care too much for role playing. It's like, my character does this. My character does this. Both equally valid, but that's kind of, you have to figure out what your party wants to do. If you have some of the people in your group that want to, like, be really into it, and the other group 
half doesn't want to, that's kind of a discussion you have to have with your party. Because it's going to ruin it for both people. Because if I'm at a table and I'm like super into it and I'm going like, Ah, oh, foul fiends, we shall defeat you. And then the person across the table is like, yeah, all right. Uh, I, I say yes. <laughs> uh, I, I stab at the, what did you call them? Foul fiends? Yeah, I stab at the foul fiends with my sword. It's going to immediately break the immersion for me over here getting super in character. At the same time, if like, I'm in the mindset of like, we're just going to kind of like hang out and like, all right, cool. I'll swing my battle axe at him. And like, most of the people at the table are in that mindset. And then there's one person at the table like, ah, yes, we have found the dragon at last and we are in their hovel. It's just like, come on, man. We're all just having a good time here. You don't need to like get super fucking intense with it. <laughs> Nave, you dare speak to me this way? <laughs> I'll have you know I'm from a grand noble house. Yeah, fuck, shut up, shut up, Steve. <laughs> yeah, we get it. You're from fucking Bedford and nobody cares. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So yeah, uh, read, uh, classic line of like, read the room. Know what your party's into and what your group is doing. And like, both of them are super enjoyable. Both of them are great ways to play the game. But like, try and have everyone on the same page. Because if one person's doing something different from everyone else at the table, or if your party's split in two... It just kind of ruins it for both groups. One person's super into it and no one else is getting on board. It's just going to be boring for them and it's going to be exhausting for everyone else. Yeah. And everyone else playing has a different idea. I feel one of the biggest hurdles uh, being a player is, is when you first start off, realizing that the story doesn't revolve around your character, but the party. It's more on the DM to figure out how they're going to interwove the story so that each character has their moment. But you have to realize that sometimes it's the player... During a big event, you're going to be kind of the one sitting back narratively. Yeah. yeah. You have to kind of accept that while you're here for the story and you're going to enjoy the story, the story is not necessarily there for you. It's You're going to participate in it, but it wasn't written around your character. The same reason why I don't like it when people write six-page backstories with tons of intricate detail. Because the moment they do that, they're signal signaling to me that they want this backstory to play heavily into the campaign and they want the campaign to be based around their backstory. And that's just not what the campaign's about. The campaign's about making sure everyone's having a good time, players and DM included, not making sure one specific player has a really good time. All right, and while you're playing, you have to make that understanding to, yeah, right now we're doing a story that's involving this character's backstory. I'm not going to have a major effect on that, but I'm going to do what I can to help that character accomplish his goal. And if you can even address that as your character, it's like, oh, this is important to my friend who I've been journeying with for so long. Yeah. I'll do whatever I can to help them. Not, I'm not going to make this about me instead. Yeah. Or the, What's that? Your parents are possessed by ghosts. Uh, that's a shame. Run through the time that I had to deal with something like this. Your parents are trying to sell your soul to Satan. Uh, I don't know. Like, I don't really care. I'll still get to keep adventuring. All right, my no, soul's no. worth at least half as, uh, twice as much as yours, so I don't know why they want my soul instead. Yeah. Also, don't kill your friend's parents in that situation unless you have to. No, no. <laughs> you don't end that situation. It's like, I got a solve for this. And I got, a, also, I got a solution. You don't have a soul if you're dead. <laughs> yeah. D d uh, I mean, I did kill Peter's character once to stop <laughs> the, the, from stealing his soul. Yeah, but to be fair, he was a vampire, so he respawned back at the guild house, but, you know... Yeah, I didn't stay dead. But I completely emotionlessly slit your throat. Yeah. Yes. And I'm only like 60% sure that you believed I would come back. <laughs> it was a gamble, but better than a demon walking around. Yep. Like, how... Oh. Yeah, because we were both tieflings, and uh, one of us had to be sacrificed. Yeah, so... I was like... And I was just sitting there like, oh, I really want to save my brother, but I don't want to die yet. And, uh, like... 
Keith here is just trying to figure out something he can do to like throw this demon lord's plans just right out the window. And then I just muttered to myself, wait, he's a vampire. And then Keith's like, oh, he is. I don't know yeah, if I so, heard that because I just walked up and slit his throat. So the story was that we were, or er, my character was a descendant of the demon lord of hell. Uh, and that demon lord was trying to enter our world. But in order to enter our world, he needed a vessel on our world who was his descendant. So he had captured me and he was planning on preparing me to host his soul. Um, and so, yeah, you guys had this little discussion. Uh, and you decided to slit my throat because if I'm not alive, then he can't have my body. Um, the thing you forgot about, though, in the moment... Matt was my direct brother, so the moment I was dead, the Demon Wars was like, uh, yeah, I got another descendant in the room, guys, and right. immediately trapped Matt in a force cage so that no one could get to him. And I couldn't slit uh, his throat because of it. Yeah. I forgot You still would have if you could have. <laughs> I yep. thought about it, I'll be honest. I remember there was a box. I just thought you were in the box, but then I forgot. How did he get a knife into the box? Uh, the box didn't, uh, no. didn't exist around me, it existed around you. Right. Yeah, and... There's so many great moments uh, as a player in the game that you experience that are kind of hard to like have a DM set up the moment for. It's more of you playing the moment and the DM is kind of just forced situation has to go with it. I wasn't the player in situation, but it was in the Arngrim campaign that we did where uh, we had two players, Thomas and Tyler, and they, they were friends, like their characters were friends for the longest time. And then there was the schism where some players ended up on the bad side, some ended up on the good side. And in this moment uh, at the time, uh, the character uh, played by our friend Tyler got the power of hatred, I believe it was. Yeah, started to become the demon lord of hatred yeah. at the time. Uh, so one of the abilities he got, which was homebrewed, was he could uh, ignite people's hatred and make them oh, aggressive against yes. the thing they hate the most. I remember yeah. there when and our going. friend Thomas's character hated magic with a passion. He wanted to wipe it off the face of the earth. And at this point, he, had, he was so wealthy that he had bought a bunch of anti-magic artifacts, melted it down into a chariot that he was riding in the battle, and... He saw Tyler's character, was charging right at him, but there was also a unit of mages off to the side. So Tyler's like, I got it. I'm going to activate his hatred and make him attack uh, the uh, mages, and I get off scot-free. Little did you know, when he triggered it, the thing that he saw that he hated the most at that moment was his friend for the longest time that actively betrayed him, and he ran him down with the chariot. Not only his friend who, for the longest time who actively betrayed him... But also a known magic user, so still playing into his hatred yep. of magic. <laughs> There's a mage who betrayed me. Personal vendetta amplified. Like, I definitely didn't think of that, uh, uh, what's it called? The trolley car experiment, which was that situation. But the time was like, oh, he hates you the most. <laughs> yep. So another example, one of my favorite moments, uh, actually from when I was playing. It was from uh, Mr. Timness, as I played him in a future campaign, because... As I said, I did not last in that first campaign because I didn't like the group, but I decided to try and recreate him in a later campaign. Uh, at this point, I just started referring to him as Toby, so he was Toby Timness, but that was a dumb name, so I just called him Toby. But Toby became to be a slightly powerful spellcaster over time, to the point where, uh, like, someone just, like, happened to be mentioning the fact that uh, bandits were, like, plaguing the village... And Toby was like, okay. And Toby just walked away and was like, I don't know what's going on. Because it was like, pretty, like, I think we had like a couple party members die beforehand. Uh, a couple sessions before. So no one in the party knew Toby super well and understood that Toby saying okay meant that Toby was going to go solve the problem. <laughs> um, so everyone was 
like everyone in Oda character understood what was happening. No one in character understood what happening was happening, so no one stopped me. And so, like, later on, I, like, message the DM privately what's going on. And then later on, the party goes to the bandit camp to try and, like, eliminate the bandits to find that it's just gone. Because Toby <laughs> just went there and <laughs> teleported the entire camp into a different dimension so that they can't bother the town. Oh, I was expecting to <laughs> see, like, a grizzled murder site and then Toby come back covered in blood. Or, like, a crater from meteors. Toby got a little bit bloody at certain points, but no, in this one specific situation, he was just like, oh, they're bothering you? I will literally send them to hell for you. Uh, so, I'll, I'm kind of on that topic. We've all played quite a few characters. Well, maybe not so much as Matt, but uh, we've played plenty of it. Out of all the moments of you playing in a campaign, do you have, like, a moment that stands out as, like, your character's most badass moment? Or, like, just stupid? Uh, see, it's not fair that you phrase it that way, Keith. Because you know my character has a bunch of stupid moments, well, and I'm hugely fond of them. Oh, no, it's not like, what, like a big moment that you feel like was, like, very like awesome, crazy, stupid, like the best moment you can think of for you, when you've role-played a character. Yeah. Um, so this one wasn't from actual D&D, but it was from a uh, campaign of a tabletop role-playing game. I think we talked about this during our DM's Perspective campaign, our podcast. But still, my favorite fucking moment of role-playing any character was when I was role-playing as the Iron Flamingo in our uh, superhero-themed campaign. And my character finds out that his adoptive daughter has been captured by the military. And rather than telling any of the superheroes around him who would happily go help him, uh, he just tells tells them all he has to leave because he has to pick his daughter up from school. And then breaks into a military base to rescue his daughter and then leaves with her. Also, I, should, I feel like I should point out this time that his daughter was also a superpowered individual. And at this time, the superpowered individuals were being hunted by the government for crimes that they may or may not have committed. Yes. Uh, so, we were all very wanted. I walked myself into a military base that was actively searching for me to rescue my daughter, who was herself a superpowered individual. Yes, I... I think that was probably one of my, like, favorite, like, ridiculous uh, moments as a character. Well, from the DM perspective of that, my favorite part about that, too, was your character's reaction when you found that this information wasn't, like, oh no or anything. It was literally, your character stood up at the table, said, well, I gotta go pick up my daughter from school, and just left. <laughs> yeah. Didn't tell the others at the party what was going on or anything. He just said, gotta go pick up my daughter from school. There were a lot of great moments in that campaign, uh, just built around the fact that my character was very dumb. Uh, well, not very dumb, but, like... Yeah, pretty dumb. Uh, like, an example of one of these wasn't even me role-playing the character. It was you role-playing the character on my behalf uh, because I was running late to a session. And so you just said that I was sitting in my super suit at the table. I just wasn't talking. Yeah. Uh, and then I ended up running a lot later than I thought I would. So I missed the whole meeting that they were having. Uh, so when I finally got there, uh, we just kind of, like, role-played a little bit and decided that I had left my super suit at the conference table in a seated position, and I was currently in the bathroom taking a dump. Yeah. And so I just missed the whole meeting, and everyone assumes I'm there taking part in the conversation, and I'm just not there for any of it. Yeah, I think the time was you actually got there just the meeting ended, and yep. I said... Uh, and that we were talking via text over the situation. And then you, as soon as you enter the room, you're like, and my character now enters from the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. Do you got any uh, of those, Matt? Uh, nothing nearly as spectacular as that. And just like Peter, my favorite moment, role-playing-wise, I already mentioned in the previous Dungeons & Dragons episode we covered, where my character was pretending that he had died a couple years ago, and I was playing as a different character undercover. Yeah. 
Um, but my favorite role-playing moment was from that same campaign. That was probably the first... It was the second role-playing campaign, not Dungeons & Dragons, that I had ever done. But it was the first time that I actually felt like I actually role-played a character well. Because my character was uh, the same character who had pretended he was dead. But at the very beginning, the very first session, his very first interaction with another player, because he woke up in this town without any memories of his past. All he had was a mask. So he just kind of made a name for himself as a mask salesman. He'd carve these masks, which people started to find disturbing because they were oddly lifelike. And these creepy rumors started spreading around him that he would make them act out of actual people's faces or people's skin. As you do. Yeah. And so just playing to the creepy rumors that were circulating around the town, I was headed to the library to do some research into magic. And I get to the library, the door's closed. I don't see any open or closed sign on the library, so I look over, the window's open. Me being the seven foot tall, hunched over guy with the giant backpack on, just kind of just stretches his way in through the window. The librarian, another player at the time, just looks over, he's like, excuse me, sir, the door is right there. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, beg your pardon. I back out the window and then just come in the front door. <laughs> Do you have a favorite moment of role-playing as a character? Uh, so this one uh, was actually uh, uh, a cleric I was playing. Uh, this one was... Oh, I think I know this story, but uh, I love it anyways. It was uh, a Worshipper of Light. Now, this was in actually a module book. I believe it was Rise of Tiamat. I can't remember which one. It's where you and a bunch of travelers are coming to the town that's attacked by a dragon and there's Hold Fulon. Horde of the Dragon Queen. Horde of the Dragon Queen. Uh, so in that part, there's a, a point in the campaign uh, when... You're going into the town to try to rescue survivors, and there's a group of people holed up in a church surrounded by kobolds. So the plan was that uh, at this time the party had, I think it was a ranger, a rogue, uh, a wizard, and two fighters. So me and the two fighters realized, oh, well, we can't sneak the people in the back of the church with all these kobolds around it, so we need a distraction. Me being a light cleric, I can easily make distractions. I can make things low, cause loud noises. So at this point... We weren't quite sure of what the level of the kobolds were going to be to us, as we didn't really get much combat, so we were playing it relatively safe. So the group idea was the ranger and the uh, uh, rogue were going to sneak in through the back, jump the wall, get into the back of the church, and sneak the people out, while the rest of the party in front of the church caused a major distraction. So we had our wizards shooting off thaumaturgy, I was making things glow, we were screaming and hollering, and the kobolds come at us. Fight breaks out, and I cast one of my cantrips, Burning Hands. And the cobalt drops instantly. And I'm like, wait a second. So I run in and just start burning hands the whole thing. Like just screaming like crazy, just <laughs> laughing my ass off. Because <laughs> I'm burning them. At this point, the people in the back had run into a small issue. And they heard the commotion up front. So the rogue decides to come up front to see what's going on to see if he needs help. He comes out to the situation of me spinning around, shooting flaming hands, burning kobolds alive. And we're just, mur like, me and the party just murdering the these kobolds in the front. And he, the other player goes, I don't want to deal with this. And just walks back in the direction. <laughs> so I thought you were going to uh, tell a different story, which I believe is from the same campaign, because you talked about this campaign before, off the podcast. Which is one of my favorite moments that I like to tell other people of great examples of role-playing. Which was, uh, you and the rogue had some disputes in the past because the rogue was a worshipper of the moon and you were a worshipper of the sun. Yeah. And at one point, 
uh, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but the rogue decides they're going to sneak down a hallway, and as they do, they make, like, a slight prayer to the god of moon before they leave, and that really upsets you, so you cast light on them just as they're about to sneak away, so they literally glow and attract attention to anything they were going to try to do. I gave them disadvantage on all of their stealth checks for the rest of that session. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, spectacular. I mean, that character, I had so many good role-playing moments, just because, like, that was more of me just... I I don't want to say screwing around, but... The campaign in the group didn't call for much seriousness. Yeah. So there's a part where we had to uh, interrogate one of the uh, guys that worked for Fulon in that situation. I had to find him because it just happened that my backstory was the one that was tied to him. So uh, to find out where the person was, we had a dragonborn in our group. And uh, dragonborns can be scary to people. So what happened is I got him to open his mouth, put the guy's head into the guy's mouth, and said, Now tell me where Fulon is! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Got advantage on my interrogation. Can't imagine why. Yeah, I guess that just kind of wraps up what we were talking about. Uh, any final comments you want to no, share? No, just uh, if you are planning on starting uh, D&D and you want to know how to build a character, just kind of do what we talked about. So focus more on the story and less on the mechanics, but also like know what kind of mechanics work and what kind of mechanics don't. And, like, Just kind of fuck around with it a little bit and you'll... You'll learn it with time. Yeah, just, yeah, you play with it till you break it. Yeah. Just read the descriptions and uh, choose what you like the sound of. Yeah. And just all the rest of the knowledge just comes from there. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast. It can be found on all major podcast services. Uh, tune in two weeks from now for the next episode when that's released. And uh, if you liked what you heard, please give us a like, subscribe if you care. And uh, leave a comment, or you can uh, email us with any suggestions or corrections at what is our po- or what is my podcast about at gmail.com. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Bedford and nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs>